But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Fathers, we now open up your word and move through it in various places, Lord. We know that all of it is from you, that you've spoken to us, that you reveal yourself to us, and of course you've revealed yourself to us through the word made flesh of whom we just heard about. So Lord, as we submit to you and listen, we ask that you'd shape our hearts, that you'd sanctify and build us up, that we would be a people who reflect the new life that Jesus brings. We pray that in his name. Amen. That passage from Micah is certainly one of the the familiar passages that gets read at Christmas time a lot. Uh, I know it's not up on the screen anymore, but but think about what was read. It starts off with this, from Bethlehem, right, will come this ruler. And then it ends with this picture of this rule, this reign and this rule. And you you think about what that represents, and you think, well, if, if this one who came as a baby in Bethlehem was to carry out all of that, we didn't see all of that unfold in his life, right? In other words, when, when, when Jesus you know, grew up and lived and, and then ultimately died, there were, there were plenty of people who were saying, well, he couldn't have been the Messiah then because we didn't see the fulfillment of all the things that were said in passages like Micah. Did you ever think that way? Like, what, how, how, how does all that work together? Well, this season of Advent is a reminder for us that Advent really comes in two parts. Advent we think of oftentimes as something that we look back upon. I know Advent is something that you look forward to, right? But we often think backwards. And a lot of the things that we think about in terms of Advent are things like Advent calendars, which are prophetic you know, passages and, 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 and all these things that point forward to this birth. When you get to the last day on the Advent calendar, you open the little door and it's Jesus in the manger, right? We don't often think of the fact that Advent is not just a looking past, but also about looking forward. Advent is very much about not only the first coming of Jesus Christ, but the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when we celebrate Advent as Christians, we celebrate Christmas time as Christians, we ought to be thinking about a, the, the, the full scope of the gospel message that Jesus came and he's coming again. Christmas morning is a reminder that, that he was born, and it ought to be a reminder to us that he's going to come back, right? That all of this, this peace that he's going to be bringing about, that we, we see glimpses of now, will one day be fully realized when he returns. The kingdom has come, but is coming, right? So Advent is a time for us to look forward and to look back. Now here's another thing about Advent that I wonder if you thought about. I'm sorry, I have this big bump here. i got pens under my Bible. Um, here's another thing I wonder if you think about. When you think about Advent, how many of you think about it in terms of 
political things or political terminology. You know, there, there's lots of people who would say that you should never discuss politics in church. And to an extent, I would agree. Uh, I would certainly agree that this pulpit should never be a place for party politics or you know, a, a party favoritism or endorsements or things like that. But to say we should never discuss politics in church, I think is to miss something significant about the Word of God. That's, that's an often uh, misguided and overapplied thinking that we shouldn't talk about political things because in fact, it's impossible to avoid political discussion in church because the Bible is full of political language and that's particularly true of Advent. So think about this. Scripture uses words like kingdom, which means, of course, it uses words like king and reign and throne and sovereign, just to name a few. Much of that language that we look at in the Bible that talks about who God is, who Christ is, and what they're bringing about is very much Political language. And the passage that we're looking at today provides another political conception. So I know we're, we're moving sort of away from our Philippians series into this four weeks of Advent, but we're actually staying in Philippians. So I want to turn your attention to Philippians chapter 3 and look at verse 20. And Paul says there this, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at the first half of that verse here this morning. Our citizenship is in heaven. This reign, this king, and this kingdom means something for us too. It, it means that we are citizens of that kingdom, and that's a kingdom of heaven. What does it mean that our citizenship is in heaven? I want to look at that in two ways this morning. And I've titled the, the whole kind of series around these four weeks of Advent because He came and He will come again. Again, that looking backward and looking forward. And this morning, I want us to consider both backward and a forward look at what it means for us to be citizens. The first one is what, what does it mean if we look backward because He came? It means this. Christians are citizens of heaven in the present. Christians are citizens of heaven in the present. That's true because He came. 1 Peter chapter 2. You don't have to flip here, but I'll put this up on the screen. I'm going to be moving around quite a bit in Scripture, so just listen more than you worry about trying to, to thumb through it. 1 Peter chapter 2. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This, this looking back at Him coming and what He accomplished, He's transferred us from this domain of darkness and into the marvelous light. Colossians talks about that as the kingdom of the Son. Right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are citizens in the present of heaven. What does that mean? Well, if we thumb through Scripture, we, we can get 
several different glimpses, and I'm, I'm just going to pick about five of them and try to very briefly put them together just to remind us of, of what it means for us in the, in the here and now to be citizens of heaven. The first one is that we are sort of resident aliens here, right? That's in this passage that we just looked at. You are this holy nation. You are this chosen people, right? You are citizens of, a, of this new place, but you are still in this current one, right? Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So in, 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 uh, we get this picture of, of stranger and alien. We were one time a stranger and alien from heaven. Now we've been made citizens of heaven, which means that we're sort of strangers and aliens now here, right? We have this resident alien status. We don't really belong to this world. If you're in Christ, your name is now written in the documents of heaven. Remember we did a new membership. We brought some people into membership just a few weeks ago. And so we, we highlighted this again that we look at membership in sort of a, kind of like the church issuing a passport. It's this, it's this declaration, this proclamation from, from the church that says, you belong to us. All, the, all those rights and privileges of, of this people belong to you. You represent us we represent you it's this idea right we are as citizens of heaven now represented by and representatives of there but we're here we have this resident alien status why well secondly because we have a different king we have a greater king revelation 1 Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before this, His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. He is the ruler of kings on earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have a different King. Jesus is our King. Which means, thirdly, that we live by a different and greater set of laws. As citizens of heaven, we live by a different set of laws and a better one. Remember in Matthew 22, Jesus said, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the, thing, the things that are God's. You have a responsibility here. You're still resident aliens here, and therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but not everything belongs to Caesar. You have a different king. So render unto God the things that belong to God. And of course, we see the disciples doing that in Acts chapter 5. Peter and the apostles answered when, when, they, were, when they were charged with preaching the Gospel and told to stop doing that. They said, no, we must obey God rather than men. We have a different king, a greater king, a different and greater set of laws. Fourthly, we have a view of the celestial city to come. We live here, but we're citizens there in such a way that we have a view of it. We can see it, right? 
Jesus talks so much about what the kingdom of heaven would be like. And we, we as His people, have we, we catch that vision. We have this sense of, of where we really belong. He says the kingdom of heaven from Matthew 13, by the way, is like a grain of mustard that grows into a large tree. He says it's like, it's like wheat among the weeds. It's like casting your net and pulling in all these fish and separating. There's good fish among the bad. The righteous separated from the wicked. This, this kingdom of heaven that we have this, this view of from here, we're told is like treasure buried in a field that's worth selling everything you have to go buy that field so that you can possess that treasure. We're told that it's a pearl of great price. We're told that it's like a humble child. That anyone who wants to be in the kingdom needs to act like the humble child. We have this vision of a, of a different kind of power structure and a different kind of reality, a different kind of value. We're also told in Luke 13 that this kingdom consists of those who would enter by the narrow gate, not by the wide gate. And in Revelation 21, we get a very vivid view of the celestial city to come. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. What a view, right? Be able to look forward and to see that what awaits us is this place where we will be with God. We will be His people. He will be our God. And finally, we have all the rights then and privileges of that city that we can see off in the distance. We have all those rights and privileges now as citizens in the present. Romans 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no, no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. One writer puts it this way. He says, because of the cross, Christians know where we're headed. And because of the cross, we are guaranteed citizenship. It's the country we belong in. The home and the land we've been looking for all of our lives. The color of our passport is blood red. And our eternal visa has already been irrevocably stamped in. Because Jesus came, all those things are true about who we are now, church. We're citizens of heaven in the present. But we're also then, looking forward, citizens of heaven in the future. There's a citizenship that we'll experience when Jesus comes back that we haven't yet fully realized, right? Number two, citizens of Christians are citizens of heaven in the future because He's coming again. Hebrews chapter 13 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And John 14, passed it here. There we go. John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may also be. A couple weeks ago, Jake got up here and he, and he preached a message and he, he titled the message Further Up and Further In. Remember that? Uh, there's a great quote uh, from C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle that Jake was kind of referencing. But I want to I read to you this quote because that, this idea of going further up and further in for this character in the, in the story, his name is Jewel, he was a horse, is his experience of, of, of entering into that ultimate citizenship in heaven. He describes his homecoming like this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up. Come further in. It's this beautiful picture of what, of what it will be like for us when we experience that citizenship in its full. We'll, we'll, we'll get there and we'll, we'll recognize all of these blessings, all of these promises fulfilled, and yet we'll also recognize that we'll never be able to exhaust the fullness of that. We'll always be able to keep saying we can go further up and further in because in the kingdom of heaven, there is no, there's no boundaries. There's no limitations. And so we're told in scripture, you are citizens of heaven now. And, and what you experience is a, is a foretaste of that. But what you have coming, it's overwhelming. But it's true of you even now. And again, we can look back at Revelation 21 and 22 and see this fuller picture of what is to come. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from, saying, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And then it says this, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And it's this lamp, its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. What a hope we have. What an awesome gift to be granted this, this new citizenship in heaven. I think one of the most important things for us to recognize, and, and for some reason, I, I think we move away from this too often, in, especially in the Western church, because we're, we're, we live in, a, frankly, a pretty comfortable society. We have pretty comfortable lives. We don't often think about uh, 
the, the, the brokenness and, and we don't often experience the longing of something better. I know when I say that, some of you are, are, are thinking already in your head, I, I feel that immensely right now. Yes, you, we will feel that at different times and some will feel that to different degrees, but, but I'm speaking more generally as a whole. We don't often think about the fact that the New Testament is regularly talking about hope. That the early church were, were, were constantly clinging to this idea of, of this new citizenship that they had. There, there's this sense of belonging that, 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 was, that was far above and beyond anything they could have ever, ever imagined here in this world. There's, there's this reality where Jesus is King and He's on the throne now. And that reality has present implications, but it has future implications that are glorious. We have hope. And Advent is that reminder to us there's a hope. What a precious gift we have. And I love that, again, another C.S. Lewis quote that you're probably very familiar with. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. And the coming of Jesus is that proclamation to us that yes, indeed you were. And I'm going to take you there. What does it mean that we're citizens of heaven? It means all of that. We're citizens in the present because He came. And we will be fully citizens in the future because He's coming again. But what, is, what else do we also know to be true? Well, that's, that's past with some present abiding results and that's future, but, but there's a whole lot of this middle ground called the what we live in, right? This, this sort of already but not yet. We're already citizens, but we don't yet fully realize what, what that means, right? We live in this already not yet of heavenly citizenship. So what does that mean for our earthly citizenship today? What does it mean to live like people who know who we are as citizens of heaven? This is the last point I want to talk about this morning. And it's this. Christians should be good citizens of earth in between. Recognizing again that we are citizens of heaven who live in this already not yet. What does that mean for us then? It means live as citizens of heaven on earth and be good citizens of earth in that in-between time. Though we are no longer aliens and strangers to heaven, we are now aliens and strangers here. Right? So how does God want you to live as an alien and a stranger? You are exiles, if you will. How does God want us to live as exiles? Well, we have a precedent for that. It comes from the Old Testament and the exile of God's people in Babylon. And I think it's a tremendous precedent and a great encouragement for us. How does God want His people to live in the here and now? He says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. And do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I know that that's a specific uh, 
command and a specific word to a specific people in a specific time and place, right? This is what God said to the Israelites as they were exiled in Babylon. And yet I think in that, it's, it's right for us to, to seek application for God's people of all time because again, the New Testament is constantly speaking to us as exiles. The New Testament uses language to describe the, the, the present kingdom of this world as Babylon, right? So what does it look like for us to seek the welfare of our city that in it we would find our own welfare. Well, it means this. It means that our heavenly citizen citizenship doesn't do away with your earthly citizenship. Your heavenly citizenship doesn't do away with your citizenship of the United States or wherever it is that you may have citizenship. Right? It doesn't do away with that citizenship. But it does encompass and inform our earthly citizenship. It informs that citizenship and it, it, it encompasses it. It takes priority over that citizenship even as it maintains that citizenship to direct us to be truly good citizens here. You know, ever since the days of the church fathers, Christians have been asking, what does it look like for Christians to live in society? What role should we play in civic society? How do we think about things as believers like, like politics or citizenship or government. And I've been studying political theology quite a bit lately. I'm actually taking a class right now on political theology. So this kind of stuff has, has been on my mind quite a bit. And I can, I can, I can distill the, sort of the primary thinking of, of believers as they think about that question. What does it look like to interact in society? I can distill it into two key ideas. And this is true of, or sort of looking at all the centuries, two, two main ideas keep emerging. The first one is this, is that politics is a foundational part of forging a good and flourishing life. So politics is a necessary thing. It helps us forge this, this good life, this flourishing life, but it's not reducible to individual happiness because we're social beings, right? We're social beings. We, we, we live and exist in these things called community and our flourishing emerges from and depends on being in a what's called a common life. So here's the first principle sort of distilled down. To be a good citizen is to be involved in and committed to the flourishing of the common good. Okay? The second key idea that, that, uh, that always emerges is this. That as Christians, we should see and we should seek this common flourishing in light of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. We're Christians. So we need to see that, that not only the world, we need to see Him as, as over it, but we, we need to see that what's best for this world, what is the common good, is Christ. Is the things that He has to say. And the order that He brings about. And we see that also within the historical realities in which that life is lived. In other words, that, that's, that's contextual to some degree. So the second principle distilled down is this. This important ethic is the great commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Common good. Committed to the flourishing of the common good by loving God and loving my neighbor. You know, there's a, 
uh, a great quote that I often think about. Uh, I don't know if it would fit. That's why I haven't done it yet. But I want to put a plaque over that door as we head out that says this. It's a quote from Martin Luther. He says this. He says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Right? Martin Luther, this, this great champion of we're, we're saved by, by faith. Right? We're not saved by good works. We're saved by faith in Christ. God doesn't need our good works, but your neighbor does. That's this idea, right? Love God, love your neighbor, seek the common good. Now, outside of Scripture, Augustine was one of the very first people to write about this idea of what civic responsibilities of Christians ought to look like. And he wrote this this famous work called The City of God. And in The City of God, he contrasts the city of God with the city of man. right? The The city of heaven, if you will, with the city of earth. Where the city of man, which we all live in, is characterized by power struggles. And those power struggles are about dominance. They're about, they're about greed and oppression and this sort of getting ahead by, by putting others down. It's not about common flourishing. It's about flourishing of me. right? That's the city of man. But the city of God, on the other hand, is characterized by the ethics of heaven. Worship of God. Humility. Self-sacrifice. And neighbor love. Now here's the thing that's interesting about Augustine's understanding of the way that these two cities interact. He sees these two cities as distinct, no doubt. But he doesn't see them as segregated. So the city of God is made up of all who belong to Christ in the church. So if you're a believer, in Augustine's thinking, you you are an inhabitant of this city of God. And you live among and within... The earthly city, right? You do. You live in Chicago, right? You live in the United States, wherever it is that you live. You are, you are this member of the city of God, but you're living in and among the city of man. There's not segregation there. You're in it, right? You work within the world then as a citizen of one city in the other to demonstrate this countercultural ethos. So for Augustine, it, it's, it's, what does it look like for Christians to live in this world? You live in it. You interact with it by demonstrating this countercultural ethos that points the way to Christ. You live in this society that's dominated by, by oppression and selfishness and greed. And you, as a community of faith, you say, no, the way of Jesus is humility, self-giving, love of neighbor. And you live that way Counterculturally, in order to demonstrate the way of Christ in a wicked space, in a secular space. You know that heaven is never going to be fully realized or experienced here until Jesus comes back. But at the same time, the values of that kingdom will be demonstrated through the church until he does. Does that make sense? The, 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 the problem, because I really like Augustine's thinking in that way, right? It's, it's, very, it's very Christ-like. You're in the world. You're not of the world, right? Shine as, as, a, as a city on a hill. Don't hide your, your lamp under a basket, right? You're in this world. Shine in this world. They will know you're my followers by your love for one another. You're going to be a countercultural community. 
That's Augustine trying to take that and apply it civically. But we've seemed to have forgotten that, I think, in the modern Western church. We've forgotten that. And you know what I'm talking about because you look around and you see this. Many evangelicals have often been enticed by the power of the world empire instead. Why is it that, that evangelicalism has become a political word? Because as Christians, too many of us have been enticed by the power of this world empire seeking to align ourselves with it in order to share in that power rather than to be distinct from it. We want to share in it. Maybe, maybe with good intentions. I think often with good intentions. Wanting to see that power utilized to bring about what we see as godly things, but we're sharing in the power of the empire rather than being distinct from it. We're not modeling the ethics of Jesus. And so one of the things I, I, I just admitted to you, I've been spending a lot of time studying political theology, and one of the emphasis that I've been doing particularly in writing a paper on has a lot to do with the involvement of the church in politics in America over the last 30 or 40 years. And one of the things that, that I've heard a million times growing up, and I hear it still today, that I think the Bible wants us to clearly see is not true, is that there's this popular thinking that America is the shining city on a hill. And Scripture would say, no, the church is. The church is. Augustine would say, the church is. That we, we are, we're the city of God within the city of man. The city of man isn't going to become the city on a hill. The church is the city on a hill. So we as already not yet citizens of heaven can be good citizens of earth in between by being the city on a hill. By being distinct. By championing the values of the kingdom that we see in Scripture in and against the values that we so often see around us in the world. But not, but not by aligning ourselves with worldly powers, by, by maintaining that distinctiveness. We should be able to affirm what is good, therefore, in the world and oppose what is evil and recognize that the typical lines and the typical boundaries that are set up to divide people into parties or camps don't apply to us. We have one specific ethic of Jesus that helps us determine what's good and what's evil. So for example, Christians should hold fast to a biblical sexual ethic Christians should hold fast to this biblical definition of marriage. But at the same time, we should be standing up for the human dignity and civil rights of all people who are made in the image of God, even those who, with whom we may disagree. For example, Christians should be champions of just laws and proponents of moral order. We should be champions of adherence to those just laws. But at the same time, be willing to speak out when laws are unjust. To the same time, be willing to stand against an unjust law, especially if it has a disproportionately negative impact on the vulnerable, or the poor, or the immigrants. 
For example, Christians should be unwavering in their commitment to protect the lives of the unborn and the innocent. I think think it's biblical for Christians to say unashamedly that abortion is a tragedy, not a social good that should be vehemently discouraged rather than promoted. And yet at the same time, be compassionate and responsive to the rights and the needs of women and children. Those in a crisis situation. Those who are experiencing abuse. For example, Christians should pray for our leaders. We should submit to their authority. And at the same time, be willing to disobey human authority in order to obey God. All of these things are biblical. Right? They're biblical. We could make a case for, for, for sort of these two sides to every coin when we think about those two sides being the common sort of platforms or the, or the common sort of party lines and, and political positions that are often espoused in the world and say, well, there's some right in, in this side, but there's some wrong on that side. And, but there's some right on this side, but there's some wrong on that side. The, the, the biblical ethic is different. It's different. And our faiths call as Christians to recognize the image of God in every person and to love our neighbor as ourselves then compels us to speak into the public square when we can or when necessary to both promote social justice and promote moral order. We have a spiritual responsibility as followers of Jesus to seek common ground and common good. We're obligated to protect the vulnerable to defend human dignity, even again of those with whom we disagree. And that's also true within the church. We may not always see eye to eye in the church with one another on policies that affect us as citizens of this country, right? But we should be willing to hear one another's perspectives with the aim of sort of this, this mutual uh, seeing the whole Biblical picture. What, what, what can we learn from each other that, that may help us sort of soften the, 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 the worldly edges that we might have that would help us see things more clearly biblically? And if we have those kinds of disagreements, to love one another even through that in such a way that at the end of the day we can stand firm as those who've been united together in Christ as one. And avoid conflict and disunity by keeping our eyes on the main thing, which is what we talked about last week from Philippians. What's the main thing? It's our shared partnership in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. If we understand Scripture, and if we understand the thinking of some of the the early church fathers like Augustine, we recognize that there's no earthly political platform that can ever be free from lust or dominance. The heart of man always drives towards dominance, towards self-grasping, towards lust. There can never be an earthly platform free from that. And again, we can also say, look, they're going to get some things right. 
If you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or you're an independent or whatever, whatever it is, you're, you're going to be able to sometimes say they're going to, everybody seems to sometimes get some things right, but they also get some things wrong. So as citizens of heaven, as Christians, we've got to say, we've got to approach this with a different set of ethics. It's one thing to belong to or have preference for one political party or ideology over another. I would expect that probably most of us do. One way or the other, right? You have a preference for a political party or platform. But, and this is a very big but, if that alliance means that you never question that party platform, if that alliance means that you never evaluate it critically, or speak truth to power when it violates the ethics of Jesus, then you've not only become an, an ideologue, but you've likely become an idolater. That's where Advent reminds us of the way of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. This is why the, the, the whole picture of Advent is so, so rich and so important. It's not a coincidence that Jesus, the King of Kings, first advent, His first coming, was inaugurated in a backwoods town, in a manger, in a barn. That wasn't accidental. It wasn't coincidental. Look, Jesus is the most dominant power in the universe. He is the most dominant power in the universe. And that will clearly be seen when He comes again. He's coming on a horse. He's going to have a sword coming out of His mouth. right? He's going to be drip, dipped and dripping in blood. He is the most dominant force. Every knee will bow and cry out. But that's not how He chose to come at His first coming. By coming as a baby in a manger to a poor set of parents, he demonstrated that the world's system of power, that the world's values of power are backwards. It's backwards. And unlike the power structures of the world, his is not one of selfish ambition or greed or abuse. There's nothing pretentious about His first coming. His power, His power is demonstrated in His willingness to humbly serve others for the common good. So as Christians who live in the already not yet of Jesus' kingdom, that's us. That's today, right? As Christians who live in this already not yet, and perhaps, especially as we're about to enter into a highly politically charged election year in 2020, okay? And I made mention last week that I remember 2016 was, was probably the, the biggest year of conflict that, that we've experienced as a church. Which is not to say that's a bad thing, by the way, in, in the sense of, like, I think it's good that if we were all thinking the same, I'd be more concerned. I like the diversity. I, I think it's good for us to, to help challenge each other, precisely because not one side gets everything right. So that's a good, that's a good thing until it leads to conflict that leads to, you know. 
conflict and division, right? We're about to head into that all over again. 2020 is coming. So with that in mind, Christians who live in an already not yet, let us remember that we are first and foremost always citizens of heaven. That as citizens of heaven, we are called to display the ethics of the true King. Remember what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Father, I pray for us as as Your people. And first of all, I thank You that because Jesus came and He's coming again, we can know with confidence that we are citizens of heaven. Nothing can shake that or take that away from us. He has secured it for us by His coming, by His death, and by His resurrection. We already have a new King. We already have a King who sits on a throne. We already have a new set of ethics. We already have a vision of the celestial city with all the rights and the privileges that come with being co-heirs with Him of that. That is our present status. And we have this great hope that He's coming back And that when He does, He's going to usher in this new heaven and new earth that there will be a kingdom here where there's no more wickedness, where there's no more sorrow, where there's no more tears. But we'll be with You and You'll be our God and we'll be Your people. Thank You that all of those things are true. And Lord, again, because they're true, would You help us to live in light of it? Help us to be a people who are, who are truly citizens of heaven even as we're citizens of earth. Help us not to be swayed into the, the power structures of this world, but help us to be a city on a hill. Help us to, to, to show the world what Jesus looks like by the way that we love You and love our neighbor as ourselves, by the way that we love one another. Lord, would You protect us from the, the divisiveness of idolatry? Would you protect us as a church family as we, you know, we step into another, another year where everything around us is going to be constantly shouting? Where everything around us is going to be pulled apart, divided into camps, polarized on issues. Lord, would you help us to be a people who are centrally united in Jesus? And who are not afraid to speak what's right and what's wrong to stand firm together in partnership for the Gospel. Help us to be good citizens. Help us to care for those who need to be cared for. Help us to be the hands and feet of Christ. 
And thank you that that's what we are. Thank you that we are we're a new kind of people. May we shine brightly on that hill for you, Father. May you get glory. May they see our good deeds and glorify you on the day of your visitation. Make us good citizens. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us.